Psalm 22. As we read this this morning, let me remind you that the context here of this psalm is that it is messianic. It is predictive. It is prophetic. It was written some thousand years before the time of Jesus Christ, yet it presents to us his experiences upon the cross in terms of his crucifixion, as well as the last part of the psalm, the glories of his resurrection. Reading Psalm 22, English Standard Version Translation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint, My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots." But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild ox. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. Vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. 
Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Our Father, we pray that as we consider these words this morning, that it would be your Holy Spirit opening up our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our minds and hearts to understand how these scriptures of the Old Testament, Old Testament testify to your Son, our Savior, even the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant us this grace, we pray, and that in hearing your word, we may understand what it means to be salt and light, even to this generation. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we return again to this psalm, what is known as a messianic psalm, a psalm that prophetically tells about the coming life of the Lord Jesus Christ from a perspective a thousand years before Jesus came into this world. It's written with that pattern of thought that we mentioned last Sunday. Uh, the first section of the psalm, all the way through about verse 21, uh, really has involved the, the suffering and crucifixion of Christ. Uh, a trajectory that we see that begins in suffering because the last part of the psalm, from 21, 22 to 31, all deal with a post-resurrection experience of Christ. A, a trajectory from his suffering all the way to his glory, from his death upon the cross to his resurrection from the dead. Now, the resurrection, of course, is the reason why we celebrate on an annual basis this particular Easter Sunday. Recently, I was asked concerning the primary events in the life of Christ, which do you think is most important, Christmas Day, Good Friday, or Easter Sunday morning? And my response was to say, essentially, that they are so inextricably combined that you cannot say that one is more significant or important than the other. Because Christmas Day gives us God coming into the flesh, the incarnation, born into this world, in order that the Son of God might live His life and live it for us. And then, of course, you have Good Friday, where the Father offers up His Son upon the cross to be that sufficient sacrifice for our sins, that necessary sacrifice, in order that we could be saved. Without the pain of that penalty, there would be no salvation at all. But then, without... Easter morning without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, you would not have the vindication of that which took place upon the cross. We would have no supernatural demonstration that what happened at the cross was truly done for us, truly the satisfaction of God's justice, truly that which could purchase us and redeem us from our sins. So I said they're all inextricably combined. They're all absolutely necessary. They are all of utmost importance. But today is, after all, Easter Sunday. And so we shall be focusing mostly upon the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So the question is rightly asked, what does the resurrection of Christ for us do? What does it do for us and for our relationship with God? I remember being asked that many years ago by uh, the husband of a member of a church where I was pastoring. He was not a Christian. And he said, I've heard several Easter sermons, 
And they said, and I hear you emphasizing the supposed historicity of Jesus rising from the dead, but what does the resurrection actually do for Christians? And I hope this morning that we can consider out of Psalm 22, this latter part of the psalm in particular, how is the resurrection for us? Well, we can discern three ways. The resurrection affects our relationship with God because the resurrection is a vindication of the claims that Jesus Christ made about himself. And the vindication of those claims about himself are vitally important for us. Secondly, the resurrection of Jesus validates the work that Jesus did for us. And that's going to radically impact our lives. But finally, we also see that the resurrection of Christ changes everything with respect to the world and with respect to us. And when we see the verification of those changes that Jesus Christ has made because he's risen from the dead, that has a tremendous impact upon us, how we live in this world and how we understand this world. So there's the vindication of the claims of Christ. There is the validation of the work of Christ and there is the verification of the changes which Jesus actually brings into this world. All of these things, the resurrection for us. So I want us to begin first by considering the vindication aspect of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ vindicates the claims which he made to be the Messiah, to be the Redeemer, uh, to be the one that God sent into this world to be its Savior. During Christ's earthly ministry, he made a number of significant statements and claims about his purpose for coming into this world. Luke 19.10 is one of the best summary statements. It comes at the end of the story of, of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, the wee little man. You know, the wee little man was he, you know, youngsters who climbed up into the sycamore tree to see what he could see. What he saw was the Lord Jesus. What he also encountered that day was salvation. For Jesus says, this man too, this tax collector too, is a son of Abraham. And then Jesus makes this statement, Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. That's what Jesus came into this world to do. But by lost, what does this mean? What did Jesus mean when he uttered the statement, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Well, according to Christ, every kind of person who is separated from God is lost. And every kind of person who has drifted away from God is lost. And every kind of person who has deluded ideas about God is lost. Anyone who has a terrible record or reputation morally is lost. Anyone who is weary and heavy laden with the crushing burdens of life is lost. All such people are lost according to Jesus. All such people are without hope and without God in the world. But Jesus came for those people. Jesus came into the world for such people. And he claimed to be a ransom for the many who were like this. And he supported that claim by maintaining that he would rise from the dead. 
Now, this is what he declared to his own disciples. Just a few weeks before the Passover, uh, he set his, his, his face toward Jerusalem, began going in that direction. And this is what he says to his disciples. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, meaning the Romans. And they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus sets his path toward Jerusalem to be there during the time of the Passover for this purpose, to be delivered up to die, and then to rise again on the third day from the dead, his death to be a ransom for many, followed by his resurrection. So we come to Psalm 22. The first half of the psalm. We find the description of that Good Friday. We find the description of Jesus' death by crucifixion, prophetically foretold, where according to the law of Moses, Jesus was cursed by God because Jesus died upon a tree, upon the cross, According to the Jewish law, a cross itself was a kind of tree. Jesus there, cursed of God, which is why he uttered the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the death of Jesus, though, had a very specific meaning, which Jesus had already predicted. He died under the curse of God. He died as a curse in the place of sinners. He died under the penalty of the wrath of God against the sinfulness of human beings. He died in their place. He bore their wrath. He bore the curse of God. He bore God's wrath and curse in order to do what? That he might be the ransom for many. Now, all of that you and I accept. But in the days in which this happened, we need to appreciate the fact that from an outward perspective, the death of Jesus Christ looked like the shameful execution of a criminal malefactor. It looked like the crucifixion of someone who was dying for his own sins because of some kind of crime which he had made. This meant that this death needed the vindication, a great vindication, even a supernatural vindication to prove that this was God's great act in His own Son on behalf of lost human beings. The suffering of the cross needed the vindication of the resurrection, which could only be performed by an almighty, powerful act of God to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that what happened on Good Friday was done for us was done so that what the work of Christ did when he came into this world was, in fact, not a failure at the cross, but an ultimate success. Now, we find this presented in the last part of Psalm 22. The great transition moves from the, the, the suffering that Jesus experienced at the hands of his enemies, the suffering that Jesus experienced under an affliction from God to an entirely different kind of setting, to a setting that, that is entirely without conflict, entirely without the sense of the foreboding evil, a, a, a time in which the one who has been forsaken and crucified 
is now experiencing not the hostility and wrath of God and enemies, but experiencing a rightness with God and experiencing the, the presence of his brothers. So look at what it says in verse 22. These are prophetically the words of Jesus. I will tell of your name, speaking of God, to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. So from the psalm's perspective, the one who is now speaking is the one who was once forsaken and put to death by crucifixion. And now he's standing in the midst of his brothers. He's standing, as it were, in the congregation. And the word there in the Hebrew, kahal, is translated into the Greek as ekklesia. And the Greek word ekklesia is no, normally and commonly translated as, quote, church. So he's standing in the midst of the church, in the midst of those who are redeemed by God, to proclaim to them, verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. The prophecy declares, the one forsaken of God, put to death in crucifixion, is now the one who is leading his brothers in worship, fulfilled through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the resurrection then is the vindication of Christ's claim to be the Redeemer sent by God to deliver lost people to bring them back to their Heavenly Father. Now, think about this from the standpoint of then those who carried this message forward. Think about the Apostle Paul. He's told us his perspective in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, if Christ was not risen from the dead, then the preaching of this message about Jesus is useless. It makes faith in Jesus useless. It makes the message of the resurrection a false testimony or a false witness toward God because it's making a claim that God did something miraculous. But if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, God didn't do that, so God didn't do this miraculous thing. Paul says, in every way, if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, then our faith is futile those who hoped that the death of Jesus would be the answer for their sins have not found hope at all. Paul said, if for only this life we trusted in Christ, we are above all people most to be pitied. But Paul goes on to say, God has raised Jesus from the dead. He knows this because he himself is an eyewitness. And he says, likewise, the apostle Peter was an eyewitness. And the rest of the disciples were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he says, even a group of people larger than 500 all at one time were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. And when Jesus appeared to all of those followers as the great congregation, it was fulfilling verse 22. For even there, Christ was telling his brothers, redeemed by his blood, to give all glory and praise to God alone. The resurrection vindicates the claims of Christ. But secondly, the resurrection also validates the work of Christ, the work of Christ for us, because it makes clear that God has accepted the suffering and dying 
that Jesus did in order to fulfill the penalty of the law. We begin by remembering this point. All Jesus suffered, all that Jesus suffered, he did for us. We remember that the deepest stroke that pierced Jesus was the stroke that justice gave. Jesus suffered according to the justice of God, but it was our sin that put Jesus to death. He suffered the punishment which all of us deserved. As the prophet Isaiah has said, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The the cross was the great work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. This means that this psalm, in telling of the resurrection, is also telling prophetically that God has validated the work of Christ. It does so by declaring the acceptance of the suffering of the one who suffered. We see this in verse 24. Here we have the testimony of the one who was resurrected after being crucified, and this is what he says. For he, God, meaning God, has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he's not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Now, quite often in the Hebrew, just like it is in English, when we say something with a negative in front of it, such as he has not despised and he has not hidden, the meaning is found in actually saying something in the positive in a very strong way. So, in interpreting what is said here in verse 24, what it means is this, that God has strongly loved that God has strongly cared for, that God has strongly revealed his face, and God has truly heard in regard to the sufferings of the one who's afflicted, describing the acceptance of that suffering of the afflicted one, the one who was forsaken on the cross, even Jesus. So God's acceptance is God's validation of the work of his Son, Many other prophecies of the Old Testament also speak of the work of Christ in terms of the death and the resurrection, that God would provide through Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Son of David, as the Redeemer from Israel, the full and necessary remedy for sin. So we could think to the the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, this is what we read. Pay close attention to the pronouns. Identify who is speaking. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then into the next chapter, chapter 13, verse 1, Zechariah says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And that's why we sing with the hymn writer, There is a fountain 
filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stain. Jesus is that fountain. The blood he shed has the power to cleanse us from all our sin and everything within us that is broken by sin. And God has validated this work of his son by his, the resurrection of his son from the dead. Therefore, God, God has validated that work for us and validated that work in our place. In trusting Jesus, God credits that work to us. By faith, God makes it count for us. In believing in Jesus, the one that God has raised from the dead, we are saved and we are reconciled to God. Finally, we see in the psalm that the resurrection of Christ verifies our faith because we see how Christ changes everything. In the final verses of this psalm, we have a picture of the changes which happen after the resurrection of Christ. The psalm describes how the people of the world are greatly affected by the salvation that Christ has brought. And this is a verification of our faith, that we can see the truth that Jesus changes everything. I just want to pause here and say for a moment that the power of that came to me Wednesday afternoon when, as a guest on the Inga Bark Show, I was listening to the people who were calling into the program not to ask questions about the Holy Week and the experiences of Jesus, but really to voice their own opinion mostly about their particular religious perspective. And as I listened to what they said, as I listened to the, the kind of darkness pervading their spiritual search, when I realized that almost none of the callers in said, it's all about Christ, it's all about Jesus, it's all about what he did, but it was, this is my opinion, or this is what I've experienced, or this is what I think. I realized that without Jesus, nothing changes. Life is lost. Life is sad. Life is broken. Life leads people either rejecting God in terms of atheism or wondering about all of this in terms of agnosticism or finding themselves deluded in terms of believing in this or that kind of thing rather than Christ. And sitting there listening to all of this what went through my own heart, my, went through my own mind is, if you could only understand that Jesus changes everything. Because I have no doubts about life after death. I have no doubts as to the fact that, that morally and spiritually I deserve the wrath of God. I have no doubts that it was God's grace that saved me. I have no doubts that sitting right here with a radio audience in front, not knowing who's listening at all, but knowing this, I can't change anybody's heart or mind. Nothing I say will have any impact, but Jesus Christ can change people's lives. And he has, and he does, 
And so convicted strongly sitting there, listening to a number of sad stories, recognizing it's all about Jesus. It's all about what God has done in His Son to deliver us from our sin. And so even in this passage here, which is so different, the last third of the psalm, so different than the first two-thirds of the psalm, we see what happens when Jesus Christ rises from the dead. We see that the whole perspective changes. First, we recognize that what's stated in verse 26, because Christ has risen from the dead, there is real hope for people who truly desire to be right with God. Listen to verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. The psalm is telling us that there is hope for the afflicted, for all who will seek Christ. Because God is promising here that those who seek, they shall find, and they shall find, and they shall be satisfied. In other words, they'll find the answers to the lostness which is in their lives. And they will find those answers in Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And when they find Jesus, God will grant to them the blessing of everlasting life. You know, Jesus himself put it this way. John chapter 6, verse 35, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand it is that direct and that simple. On the radio program, as I was having one questioner trying to entice me into doing a philosophical debate, I was just simply praying that obscures the truth that you want expressed, Lord God. It doesn't matter if a man can philosophically answer all the questions that the skeptics and atheists can raise. The question is, at the end of the day, if you had all those questions answered, would you be willing to bow your knee to God? Because Jesus made this claim. He is the bread of life. Not Socrates. Not Plato. Not some postmodern. Not Derrida. No one. Nothing. Just Christ. The bread of life. Those who come to Him never hunger. Those who believe in him never thirst. We also see in the resurrection of Christ, there is real hope for the future of this world. Now, I have been through a lot of graduations. Teaching high school for 13 years, I had to sit through 13 graduation ceremonies. I went through high school once, only once, only had to go through once, sat through that ceremony. I've gone to college graduations. I've sat through those ceremonies. And in almost every public or private collegiate setting, something is said like this. This graduating class, you 
are the hope for the future. And I've wanted to stand up and say, I have heard this over the last 40 years. None of you folks are living up to your hope. <laughs> it ain't happening. The world looks, from our perspective, incredibly dim, incredibly troubled. Yet I want you to understand that Jesus Christ changes everything, even the future and the destiny of this world. Look at what it says in verse 27. The prophecy of this psalm declares this. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Now, what is basically stated there is that the only way to be right, the only way for this world to be right, is to be right with God. And here we have prophesied that in some wonderful way, the very ends of the earth and all the families of the nations are going to turn to God and worship Him. I would not pretend to know how that's going to take place. Whether it's some premillennial or postmillennial or all-millennial perspective, I don't know how it's going to work itself out. But the promise of this verse, we see reflected, we see it even fulfilled in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 9, a passage about Christ, where the heavenly creatures sing a song of praise to Jesus in these words, verse 9, for you, Jesus, you were slain, and with your blood you did ransom people for God from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees that the future of this world will be made right with God. And finally, we see in the resurrection of Christ the proof and verification that God has the whole world in his hands. Verse 28, For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. In other words, the God who raised Jesus from the dead is the sovereign God. He has the ultimate power as king over all of his creation, all of the creation belongs to God and to God alone. And the raising of Jesus from the dead is proof that God has the whole world in his hands. And that means he has you and me, brother, and you and me, sister, and the little bitty babies in his hands. So the question of Easter is rightly the question, what does the resurrection of Christ do for us and for our relationship with God. Well, it vindicates all the claims that Jesus made about himself as the Savior, making those claims for us. It validates the work which Jesus did upon the cross, the all-sufficient atonement that we need in order to be made right with God. It validates what Jesus did. It also verifies the fact that Jesus Christ changes everything. He's changed us.
We know this to be true. God through his word. God through his word. Therefore is always calling for believers and non-believers alike to respond to his word. And I'd say to us who believe there's a call here in the message of the resurrection to thank God for his son and for his death. Let me read some words that Martin Luther has written about this. He says, Christ Jesus lay in death's strong bands for our offenses given. But now at God's right hand he stands and brings us life from heaven. Therefore let us joyful be and sing to God right thankfully loud songs of hallelujahs. The proper response from us is to be so thankful to God for his grace and to say all glory and praise to you God for what you've done for us. So that we would know we no longer live for ourselves but we live for him who died and rose again on our behalf. And to those who are non-believers, there's a call from God to see the emptiness and lostness of life apart from Christ himself. Some 50 years ago, John Lennon and Paul McCartney expressed it this way concerning human lostness. He's a real nowhere man sitting in his nowhere land making all his nowhere plans for nobody, doesn't have a point of view, knows not where he's going to, isn't he a bit like me and you? Jesus came to deliver people out of nowhere land. He has given a true redemption in his blood. He has given the author of the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace, which God lavishes upon those who will believe in him. For in the resurrection from the dead, we have the vindication of all of Jesus' claims, the validation of all of his work, the verification that Jesus Christ changes things so that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Amen.